Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. Hey guys, wanted to start this one off a little different from the other ones. First off by saying thank you so much for listening to the podcast. On this episode, we're going to cross 10,000 downloads. This is our 12th episode. We're very excited for how many people listen every week, the feedback we get, the information that people want to hear about, and this episode is going to be no different. But first, let's talk a little bit about how awesome of a season it has been for the last two weeks. There have been some hammers laid down. If you're not following us on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, I highly suggest it. You're going to see some huge deer falling. We love showcasing people's first deer. That's probably our favorite thing to do is if you kill your first deer, it doesn't, doesn't matter if it's a button buck, a spike, a doe. We want to put you out there because this is all about you, the Louisiana bow hunter. So thank you for following us. This week's episode is real exciting. It's a little different from what we've done in the past. It is all about buying hunting land. We have Slade Priest on the horn, and he goes into detail about the process of buying your own property. The first half is all about how to acquire your first piece of property, and then the second half is all about falling down the rabbit hole and talking about killing deer and turkeys and different ways to do that like we always do. We always fall down the rabbit hole. But before we get started, we need to give a huge thanks to our sponsors of the podcast. We just picked up Old Cypress Outdoors, so welcome aboard and thank you for sponsoring the podcast for October. And also, as usual, a huge shout out to Steve German's Taxidermy and Cousin's Smokehouse. We couldn't put this on without you. So y'all be sure to check them out online and pick up a bag of Cousin's Smokehouse jerky for your hunting bag this season. Let's get started. 
All right, guys. So on this episode, we have Slade Priest, hunting land man, who is going to tell us a lot about purchasing our own piece of property. This is this is I would imagine every guy's dream is to have a piece of land, and this is an interesting topic that somebody brought up wanted to hear about is uh, the process of doing it. How is it different from buying other property or a house or something like that? So Slade Priest is on the phone with us. Slade, thanks for joining us today, man. Well, Kyle, thank you for having me on, man. Just uh, feel honored to, to to be, you know, part of this thing. And uh, definitely, uh, I don't know everything, but uh, this is what I do for a living. And um, like I said, I am the hunting land man, and I kind of coined myself that that name. Uh, and because basically, all I do is sell hunting land. And uh, my job, I had a dream job, you know. After my clients, you know, we spend our day together looking at property. They tell me all the time, man, I love what you do. You know, you. I have an outdoor television show trained assassins, and then I sell hunting land for a living. So tomorrow I'm going to go do a little office work, and then tomorrow afternoon I'm going to show somebody some hunting land, you know, their next honey hole, if you will. So uh, I definitely very blessed and uh, feel very fortunate to do what I do. That's great. Well, I appreciate you joining us today. Um, and and I, I know we, we tried to get together a couple times. You and I have been talking for two or three months trying to physically get together. Now, you live in, I believe, Woodville, Mississippi, right? Well, it's actually it's in Centerville in the Centerville. same county as Woodville, right? Uh, just a little east of Woodville. Yeah, just just straight north of St. Francisville, pretty much, and um, and I'm in Baton Rouge. But you sell property in Louisiana and Mississippi, am I right? Correct. We sell in Louisiana and Mississippi. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of property that changes hands in the Feliciana, the East and West Feliciana, but we do sell a good bit down there. Uh, and then, but something unique, you know, this is Louisiana bow hunter, and something unique is. Most of my clients are Louisiana bow hunters. They just own property or hunt on property in Mississippi. You know, we in a really cool area in southwest Mississippi. You can leave the interstate in Baton Rouge and be at my house in 50 or 55 minutes. You know, you can be on your stand in an hour from Baton Rouge. So we live in a pretty unique area. Yeah, that's not a bad deal at all. So um, obviously we've got a lot of uh, exports during hunting season from Louisiana that, that head over to Mississippi. And, um, you know, I... I've always, uh, I'm kind of under the impression that some of the Mississippians have some hard feelings towards us coon asses coming over and, as they say, quote-unquote, shooting all their spikes. Um, but uh, as far as buying pieces of property, this is kind of a, a, a mecca for us, for us Louisianians. If we want something in Louisiana, like you said, there's not a whole lot that comes up for sale. And, and that's actually something that I'm interested in talking about is what are generally the, the circumstances of the of why the property is for sale is it is it um you know somebody uh, is deceased and they're trying to split up the will is somebody trying to get off of a piece of land and make some money what's kind of the the general um circumstance under which land is for sale like that well it's kind of area specific let's start with louisiana right here close to me in the east and west feliciana um there's a lot of large landowners and something that that is kind of happened in like let's say you said st francisville in west feliciana you know i sold a track down there the other day and you know it's the track that i sold was 7500 an acre for you know a little over 100 acres and you know when you get that kind of money involved it's hard to justify from a recreational standpoint whenever you can drive one county north or one parish north into mississippi and you know buy stuff from anywhere from 2500 to 3500 an acre you know Mm -hmm. so it's uh but Tell you what's happened in southwest Mississippi in Amit and Wilkeson County. Uh, the, the company Plum Creek, which is now Warehouser, it's a, a timber company, and most people that lease land lease from these timber companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, over the past probably 20 years, they've been selling a lot of land up in this area. So that created a lot of, a lot of people, you know, out of um, Mississippi and Louisiana that bought these tracks. And, you know, so let's say the guy 15 years ago, he bought 100 acres. Well, now uh, maybe, you know, he's, he's getting older and wants to sell it, or maybe he's getting older and he's got a little better job and he's wanting to buy bigger tracks. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff that happens up here that doesn't happen in the Felician as, as much, you know, uh, this land is a generational land. You know, it's something people purchase in the last 10 or 20 years. It's turning over. So it changes hands more frequently. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but something just popped in my head that I've always been curious of, and I'm sure other people have thought this too. Obviously when people are buying land for, um, deer hunting, obviously you need generally, you need woods for deer to live in to hunt. And so what kind of what kind of situation do you see people getting in where they're considering the um, the timber value? Is it an option? Like, have you had people that would have had to clear-cut the land, not immediately, but in the next five or ten years in order to make money back to be able to afford it? Or, well, or what? You, you know, you, the question you ask is a, it's an extremely loaded question, but it's a good question I deal with every day. First of all, the people out there listening, if you or someone you know is buying land or hunting land, if their realtor, if their landman doesn't know anything about timber, they better find somebody who does. And, uh, I'm fortunate. My little brother is a seventh-generation logger. That's all I've ever done has been around the logging business. My dad, my brother, my grandpas, uh, my uncles, you know, they've been in the timber and the land business. But anyway... So when you buy a piece of land, the way land is valued, we take it. It's not just, oh, this piece of land is worth it. It is a mathematical equation. What I mean by that is the dirt, you know, what is physically the dirt is worth a certain amount. Mm -hmm. And then the timber on top of that, you know, and and the places with nice food plots or, of course, camps or barns or nice roads, you know, they're worth more. But let's just take land and timber for, okay, if, if let's say in regular in southwest Mississippi in Wilkeson County, where, where I'm from, you know, the land is worth 2000 to 2400 an acre plus the timber on top of it. So let's take a raw piece of land, average piece of land is worth, you know, $2,200 dirt, and it's got $1,000 an acre worth of timber on it. That piece of land is worth, you know, 3200 an acre roundabout. Now, that means that if you clear cut, you know, every every tree on it, you know, you can get $1,000 per acre worth of trees. So, you know, the timber has value. And everybody, and all my deer hunters out there that, that are educated in the timber process and how we're, oh, I'd never cut my trees. I'd never cut my trees. You can't think of it like that because mm-hmm. the trees are no different than gold bars in a field. You may not never want to move those gold bars, but they have value. And if you want to pay for them or not, they still have value. And what I also tell my clients is, I know you say you'd never cut those hardwoods down there in that pretty bottom you like to hunt, but if, if it was those trees laying on the ground and your kids eating, I bet you'd cut those trees down. So let's just <laughs> yeah. both, both agree that they have value. That's a good point. That kind of, you know you know what else people are like that about? Guns. People, oh yeah, definitely. I never sell. I never sell my grandpa's thirty Well, I, I bet if it came down to you not having right, electricity right, exactly. for a month, yeah. And so it's. I mean, we all have things. We all have possessions that we, of course, don't ever. It's not that we would never sell them. It's that what we're really saying is we hope we're at, we're never in a situation where I have to sell it, right? Exactly. Um, and so that was that's something I was I was wondering was how how is the timber valued and obviously. 
um, you don't have to cut the timber to get your value back out of it because that kind of, you know, we're, we're thinking about it for two different, two different uses. One is deer hunting, which obviously we want the trees and we want the pretty bottom. But the other thing is that we don't want to be cutting down our favorite hunting spot. We don't want to be devaluing the land ourselves as far as uh, our, our hunting property, if you will, and our hunting spots. Correct. And, and the whole, re- you know, the most, the, the topic we're talking about is, you know, people buying land for hunting reasons. But on that topic, I always tell my clients, I said, listen, let's make a smart decision. Let's buy a piece of ground that fits your hunting needs. You know, because some people are are really worried about growing five-year-old deer, and some people are worried about having a nice place where every time they go sit on a sand, they can see a deer. You know, it's it's and neither one of them is wrong. You know, in today's hunting society, we've gotten so hung up on, you know, oh, I got, I got, I'm, if he ain't four years old, I ain't shooting. And that's what I do personally. I like to bow hunt, and if he's four years old, I shoot him. Now, some people, oh man, if he ain't 140 inches, you know, I ain't, even, I ain't even getting excited about it. And you know what? Neither, neither person is wrong. So, you know, as long as everybody's being legal, being safe, and and doing what they want to on their land, that's their God-given bundle of rights that they buy when they purchase a piece of land. Yeah. Let's get let's start talking a little bit about the process of looking for a piece of property and then also I'd like to get into later on kind of the financials and and the difference between them. So um so tell me a little bit about the process of buying a piece of land and and it doesn't have to be a thousand acres by the way. You know, let's is there a different process for buying, you know, 25 acres or 50 or 150 at a time? Tell us a little bit about it. No, it's, it's all the same process. Something like 96% of searches these days start on the Internet, as it does for most products. Land is no different. Um, they have some great land land websites. Uh, you can go to my website, huntinglandman.net, and it'll take you to a couple different sites. And uh, But Landwatch, Lands of America, these are sites that are kind of like hubs for you know, everybody's, everybody's product, everybody's land that's listed out there. So that's, you know, get on there, start, educate yourself, figure out what's my goals, you know, how, what's my budget, and then go on the internet and kind of do a little bit of your own research, what things are going for, what, what piques my interest, because Kyle, you can call me tomorrow and say, Slate, I want a hundred acres with, uh, you know, some hardwoods on it and a uh, road frontage and a creek, and I'll get to looking for it, and I may send you that. But mm-hmm. then you may get on the internet and go to looking, and something that just sparks your interest that didn't spark my interest, and I passed it right over because I'm not the end user, I'm not the buyer. So it's important to do your own research, not just rely on whoever you got looking for your land. And that actually brings up another another question. As you can tell, I have a lot of questions about this because this is something I, of course, also want to do one day is have my own piece of property. But, um, you know, if you were a real estate agent, as far as homes go, it's pretty easy to um, go through a house and list all the features and characteristics of it, right? You know, gas, gas right, stove right. tops or wood burning fireplace or, um, you know, this many bedrooms and this many square feet and blah, blah, blah. Are land websites kind of categorized with the same types of attribu- attributes like that? Well, if the realtor is doing his job and, you know, like any job, some do better than others in their ad copy. You know, they're going to give you a brief description of the land. You know, hey, hardwoods, four food plots, comes with box stands, you know, uh, one hour from Baton Rouge, you know, all these things. Of mm-hmm. course, the maps, 
if the if the if there's good maps available. And with today's technology, man, you can learn so much about a piece of land. You know, you can get on Google Earth. I can get on my Google Earth pro program, and I can go back to 1996 and see what has happened on the land and if the timber's been cut. And so there's so many things you can do. So uh, you definitely want to look at the ad copies. And, and like you said, on the house, it'll say 2,500 square feet, you know, cypress board and bat. On land, you know, you need to pay attention to the timber, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the things that jump. If you're looking for a in-user type place, you know, a, um, a place is turnkey, of course. You may be looking for a place for the cabin. Um, uh, it's on food plots and roads already on it. Or if you're a guy who enjoys the process, maybe you can save a little bit of money and do the process yourself. So you want to look looks for those sort of things. Gotcha. Is it possible to flip a piece of land similar to to how you would a house? Is it is it reasonable to think that maybe there's undervalued land out there that you could do some improvements on and make some money on top of it? A hundred percent. I do it for a living every day. Okay. Um, you know, I've been, I've been buying, I've been buying land since about 07 and, you know, just like any other commodity, if I see something that's undervalued and, you know, I'll give them, I'll give the, uh, it's not an insult to say, look, I'll give you this for it. And if they take it, maybe, maybe like I bought a place the other day that, uh, didn't have any roads or any food plots on it. And I, you know, and I went in and I put roads and food plots and, and I planted the plots. I put bow hunting box stands up and, and put a campsite. And, you know, it's a lot of that stuff that I'm really comfortable with. The guy maybe who is sitting in New Orleans, you know, and he's uh, got his everyday job, doesn't have time for that. So he mm-hmm. puts a lot of value in the work that I did that, you know, kind of everyday work for, for somebody like me who lives up here in the country. But, yeah, there's definitely opportunities out there. Now, the negative is you've got to make your money when you buy, you know, you've got to yeah. buy it right. Just a- anybody who buys any commodity, you make your money when you buy. So, uh, you know, I would caution people to, uh, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, a lot of times it is too good to be true kind of deal. Yeah, that's true. I, I, and I'm sure so, a lot, a lot of your money that you're making is probably being handled in the, the negotiation stage rather than the, uh, listing price of it right um where you're you're not going to see a piece of land pop up on one of these sites that everybody looking at it knows it's undervalued right um because no because if 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 it hits the site usually most of the land buyers in the area like myself i mean some of them squeak squeak by but a lot of them we've already passed up so let's talk about the types of preparedness people need to have for getting getting ready to buy a piece of land when it comes to property, is there any difference as far as down payment expectations or um, even maybe even interest rate differences between a piece of land and a home? What's the difference between those? Well, your interest rates are a little bit higher on land. It's depending on it's depending on how exactly you're going about doing what you're putting down. Typically, there's two types of loans that we deal with a lot. We deal with the land banks like. Louisiana Land Bank, Southern Ag Credit, you know, we deal with those guys a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, your conventional banks, you know, they all lend for land. And all. And, and there's neither one of them are right or wrong in how they do things. And some fit, you know, the payment schedule or the amortization works better on, you know, for one person than the other. But uh, my suggestion is the day you start looking for land and, and thinking, okay, I'm going to take the next step. I'm going to kind of line up to go look at some properties. I would go ahead and, and call your financial guy and kind of get you a budget established because 
if you go up and you look on your first Saturday calling me up and go looking at property, you can see a property that, that you just absolutely, this is what I've always dreamed about. Let's go ahead and why not have everything ready to go? Because I'm going to tell you, a good piece of land that you fall in love with, somebody else will probably fall in love with it too. So time is of the essence with land. That's something I can't, can't stress. What will happen, you know, it seems it happens all the time. Somebody comes up and says, man, I really like this piece. Give me, I'm going to call you in 10 days. I'm going to really think about it and I'm going to pray about it. I say, oh, okay, that, you know, <laughs> do what you need to do. And then they call back. I'm sorry, man, I got a contract on it. And I hate it. It breaks my heart, but, you know, I I can't make the decision for them. Yeah, of course. I mean, you got to strike when the iron's hot. So, so I guess in short, just have all your ducks in a row before you're actually going out and, and setting appointments because otherwise, I would you're... definitely re- recommend that. Uh, and even if if you feel comfortable with this, have a uh, have a um, you know, hey, I, I've already been approved for you know whatever it is, two hundred fifty thousand, whatever that that number may be. Go ahead and have it and. And so you could send that it whenever you send in an offer, let's say I showed you a piece of land tomorrow and you made an offer and uh, you put on there that you're already been pre-approved. So, so financing is not a contingency. That offer is worth more to a seller because they says, man, I'm not. Are you telling me all I had to do is sign this offer and it's sold? I don't have to wait 10 days to see if his loan comes through. It just means a lot more from a seller standpoint if you got your ducks in a row. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what kind of down payment expectations are there for, for buying a piece of property? Now, they always got special deals and special stuff going on, but typically uh, typically 20%. Uh, now, sometimes I've seen as low as 10 and 15, but 15 to 20 is, is pretty much the number. Uh, that most people have to come up with to close uh, to close a loan for a piece of land. Gotcha. And so, if you got a two hundred thousand dollar piece of property, that's going to be forty thousand dollars down, right? So, Correct. Um, Correct. Okay. So obviously, that's the I would imagine. Other than having a income high enough to support the mortgage, is it a mortgage? I don't. I'm not even sure about that. What's it called? Uh, it well, I guess it would be. I mean, it's a low. A mortgage is a yeah. They have a lien against it. It's a mortgage against yes, sir. Yeah, land note. I guess it'd be more of a note than than, mm-hmm. than a mortgage. But, right. Um, but uh, rather than having uh, the ability to pay for it month over month, you've also got to have a substantial chunk of change to put down on top of it as well. Um, Correct. So- and and something for something like that. There's also, uh, you know, when you talk about timber, I do deals all the time. You know if. If you find this perfect piece of land and it's got really, let's say it's got really good timber, let's say it's a uh, half pine and half hardwood, and the pine's pretty pine plantation, and let's say it needs to be thinned right now, you know if if it kind of straps you a little bit to come up with that forty thousand, you know that down payment, you know right after you buy it, we can go in and, and a good realtor that you know is familiar with with uh, timber and things like that and help you. Hey, we'll go ahead and get the timber thinned, something you may have wanted to do anyway here in the future, and go ahead and you know, get some of that cash back so uh, it doesn't take its hit as hard. And there's always options of land. I tell people all the time, land didn't like, you know, buying Apple stock or Exxon stock, man. Nothing wrong with stocks, but I, I practice what I preach. All my money I've ever made is in land. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, you know, if the stock market drop, you know, falls 500 points tomorrow, man, the guys with stocks are Oh, they're scratching their head. They're sweating. You know, if land prices drop a little bit, hey, who cares, man? We're still hunting on October 1st, you know, and you can always go and cut timber. And I've never seen anybody catch a fish or kill a deer on, on their stock portfolio. <laughs> that's good, man. Yeah, I'm sure that's not the first or hundredth time you've said that, right? No, man. And my whole family, that's, I mean, you know, we just, uh, 
I heard, I think it was Warren Buffett. It was one of these billionaires. He said, uh, if you could give me all the gold in the world or all the farmland in the world, I would take all the farmland. And what he meant by that is, you know, if, if people can't eat, they don't care about gold, but yeah. they do care about farm ground. You know, yeah, it's yeah. always going to have a lot of value. And that's to be said for all types of ground, you know, timber ground. Uh, you know, most of our pulpwood up here, which is the smaller diameter trees and things, it is sent to GP in Fort Hudson in Louisiana, mm-hmm. and you make uh, paper towels and toilet paper. And I tell everybody all the time, you know, the zombie apocalypse can happen, but toilet paper is still going to be pretty high on the <laughs> list. The, to- the trees are always going to be worth something. Yeah. That's funny. Just as a side note, I've got, um, talking about a zombie apocalypse, I've got a friend of mine named Ike Ryan. He's We've been friends for over a decade now, and, and he's got a camp down in Bayou du Large, South Tahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, and anybody that's listening from South Louisiana, it's the camp as you are. If you, It's it's down the bayou. you got to take a boat there. It's the camp that's uh, the last one on the bayou. It's white camp. Um, before you take a right into uh, Mud Lake, I think it's Mud Lake, and it's got the big uh, sign on the front with the cowgirl riding a, ho- a uh, redfish. But anyway, we all have a pack. <laughs> we all have a pact, right? That if there's ever a fallout in the world of any type, whether it's like an invasion or nuclear, whatever, or like you say, a zombie apocalypse, a, a very small, only invite-only group of people. We all know that when when that siren's going off, we just head down to the camp and we bring gasoline, we bring toilet paper, we bring tequila, and propane, and everything else. Ooh. Everything else we can catch and eat, right? And 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 then, right. and then we've got you know we'll bring guns and and all the ammo and all and fishing rods. But you got to make sure you bring. I, I heard propane, and I know you're gonna be killing ducks and catching fish, so you make sure you bring plenty of. Uh, flour, Tony, <laughs> yeah. and uh, grease because the, you're gonna the, need to fry a lot of stuff. The bare minimums, but yeah, you got a good point. Yeah. I mean, toilet paper is uh, people are never gonna stop wiping their ass, right? So that's a that's a good that's point. Correct. That's funny. Well, um, so moving on, man. Let's some other questions I got. How does taxes work and operate on a large tract of land? Let's say 100 acres or 250 acres. How is that different from your home? Well, what most people, uh, you know, they laugh at the land taxes for these larger recreational pieces because they're so low versus, uh, like here in Wilkeson County, where I'm from, three to four dollars an acre. So if you've got a hundred acres, you know, you're looking at three or four hundred dollars a year. I mean, it's, it's, it's very nominal. I mean, wow. four hundred bucks is still a lot of money, but, you know, it's very nominal for the type of investments you're making. So, uh, you know, and some of our listeners out there, you know, they may be buying land and, and uh, you know, you know, talking about, you know, the good investments you make. You know, there's people in our county that are paying 15 to $30 an acre just for a lease. Yeah. So, you know, if you, uh, you know, you pay that for a while, you know, you might as well bought your own piece of land. So it's a, uh, you know, land, even if maybe, I mean, if something comes up and, you know, the kids go to college or, you know, and you, and you, and you can't hunt for a couple of years because you're busy. Uh, you know, there's still value in, you know, if you're, if you're only paying $3 an acre to, um, you know, for taxes and your land's paid off and you're getting $30 an acre, you're making a little money, you know, plus your timber growth and, and land, and land value. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great point. And that's something, you know, I, I, I doubt, I highly doubt out there that there are people leasing property 
for 15 and $30 an acre by themselves, right? Usually the reason people lease is because they split it up amongst all the members and it makes it affordable for everybody on there. And well, we, we say that. I mean, heck, I lease it all the time, man. Uh, I tell you, uh, you know, we a lot of times we lease ground around here and then I sublease out the deer hunting to keep the turkey hunting because, you know, we have our core farms with deer hunt on and then uh, you can never have enough turkey hunting ground, so we always try to get as much of that as we can. Yeah. That's a good point. And, that, and if anybody asks, if one of your questions is on here, what's the best part of your job? No doubt the number of turkey hunting spots I get. It's just <laughs> because a lot of times people buy land and for whatever reason, they, they don't turkey hunt. You know, they're baseball fans or they're catching uh, trout and redfish and they don't turkey hunt. And, hey, man, you mind if I turkey hunt? No, go ahead, whatever you want, man. That's the best part of my job. Well, turkey hunting is, and this is, this is my theory, turkey hunting is the new duck hunting. Right. It's the new yep. cool thing. The to new do. cool thing. Oh yeah. And and what's really funny to me about that is, you know, I've I've been a duck hunter much longer than I've been a deer hunter. And um people that duck hunt and have been doing it their whole life, they don't dabble in duck hunting. Okay. It's not something they're just gonna try out for a couple of years. And the only people that are more hardcore during a, a and let's be honest, turkey season small, during a, a short season is turkey hunters. Turkey hunters are like highly functioning crackheads for an animal, right? And it is... It, I, it, it, I totally... I mean, you preach into the choir. I tell my wife, and I've said it in front of her a hundred times, if I had to pick between deer hunting, turkey hunting, and women, I'm picking turkey hunting every time. <laughs> it's just... It, I, I, I just, I have a problem. I mean, there's two types of people in the world. I, I, you can ride down the road, and there may be guys that listen on this podcast that look out in the field and see a turkey strutting, and, oh, man, look how pretty that turkey out there strutting. All I can think about is you think that somebody will let me hunt that turkey, yeah. and that thing needs to die, and I guarantee I can kill him before dark. I just, <laughs> I think all of them ought to die. I just, I love them, but hate them. Yeah. So I've, I've only been turkey hunting, oh, man two or three times and um and i had I ne- i've never killed one um but but i was also going with my bow i shot one i shot it through the breast um didn't kill it it flew off but um i i have yet to experience the absolute chaos and internal celebration of killing a turkey because um it's from everybody that tells me about it it's the greatest thing on the planet but the the coolest thing about it for me and and this is how it's this is how it's different from what happened to duck season um in the past i would say seven to eight years is that if you suck at turkey hunting you don't kill a turkey if you suck at duck hunting you'll still probably kill a couple of ducks you know, right. and that's the really bad thing about it is that that keeps the mediocre players coming back to the launch every every weekend, every Saturday, every every Sunday, and they know that there's a that's a law of large numbers. If I go on enough hunts and if I sky blast enough ducks, I'll kill some, eventually knock some down. But with a turkey, there's some people that I think they probably got into it this year or last year, and they have already sold all their turkey shit <laughs> because. Oh it, yeah, I mean. Yeah, you can be a pretty good you can be you can be a pretty good turkey hunter and not kill a you know not kill a turkey this season. Now we're very blessed, you know. I have a lot of ground to hunt. I go every I go pretty much every morning during turkey season, and here in Mississippi, you know, it's a six week season, and then I hunt a couple other states too. And you know, usually I get to watch fifteen to twenty five a, a year die. I don't look. I don't keep up with how many. I, well, I do, but I could care less how many I kill. Of course, I want to kill some, but. 
man, I get my limit of three. I want to take my Uncle Russ, who's on the TV show with us, and get him. I want to take my wife. I'm, my little boy gets the age now where I can start taking him. I just like going and watching them get shot in the face. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I've got a lot of friends that are hard into it, and and maybe you know maybe it's uh, maybe it's because of where I live, and and I don't I'm not around them as often as as you might be, but. I've just never been that big into it, but but also something I've always realized about myself, I am extremely compartmentalized when it comes to my outdoor activities. Okay, um, usually I am duck hunting in the morning, bow hunting in the evenings on the weekend. Sometimes bow hunting before or after work if it's before daylight savings time, and I can get in a tree before it gets dark. But normally, what happens is that from October first. And then, of course, duck season opens, you know, November 8th or the 15th or whatever it is, first, second weekend in November. Normally, I am uh, a hunting uh, widower, right? Um, my wife's the hunting widow, and and, and uh, I'm the one that's leaving her for the season every weekend. But um, when it comes to be February 16th, February 15th is the last day of bow season in Area 6, and usually I'm scraping it, uh, trying to just drag it out until then out of principle alone. But when it gets to be February 16th, whatever day that is, I'm done. (laughs) I am done. I'm not pulling my boat anymore. I am not. I, I throw all my bow hunting stuff in a in a um, Rubbermaid container and throw it in the garage, and I don't even look at it until the next season, about this time, right right preseason, you know, in a September time. And so, turkey season for me has always been at the very end of like when I'm just burned out. I just I mm-hmm. I have I have the don't wants, don't cares. I'm gonna sleep in. I'm gonna remind my wife that uh, I love her and that. You know, I'm going to be home from now on and I'm not going to abandon her anymore. And so for me, it's a combination of that. The fact that I am so segmented in in my hunting and fishing and duck hunting and deer hunting and all that, that I can't squeeze turkey season in. But on the other side of it, I don't live in a place where there's that many turkeys. There's not a lot of turkeys around Baton Rouge. And by the way, Louisiana kind of sucks for turkey hunting anyway. Um, It's not. It's tough, man. We got some pretty good hunting up here, you know, in the Feliciana by us and I've been on some really good turkey hunts with uh, my buddy Blake DeBall and the Wascoms and mm-hmm. and uh, Craig Fitz down in, in Louisiana. But I've actually never killed a turkey in Louisiana. I've watched a bunch die, but I just always uh, always have uh, you know done my hunting in Mississippi and then film people and call the people in the south. I mean yeah. in uh, Louisiana. So I, you know, I've always I'm always looking for another expensive hobby to take up, and so maybe turkey hunting in, in the future. But but I'll tell you what, I feel like I'm, my plate's pretty pretty full with what I got right now. Um, That's well, right. So what? And and you know, obviously more of the land side than I do. What are, what have we not covered that people should know about the process of of searching or buying a piece of property? Let me see. Let me see. Well, you definitely, you know, take care of your finance and do your own research. Um, you know, yes, you can go out and you can try to buy land from a, a for sale by owner and stuff like that. But, you know, the, typically the seller is paying the real estate commission, just like in a housing transaction. So, you know, find a guy like myself. It doesn't have to be me. I, hell, I can I can recommend you other people that I would trust, you know, trust recommend to Um that you know tell them what you're looking for put me on your email list like i have an email list that uh if you if you call me about a piece of property that'll be the first thing i tell you hey text me your email address i'll put you on my list because 
a lot of times the, the good stuff that comes on the market may actually never hit these land websites, you know, because it'll sell before it ever does. Yeah. Uh, you know, good stuff does sell fast. Good stuff priced right sells fast. Um, you know, everybody does it. I guess we haven't covered this. You know, the best time of the year for us selling land, we sell right now from middle of September until the end of February. So it's the people that are, oh, man, I got to get me a place. I, I lost my hunting camp or, I lost, you know, I got to get me a place. And then the people in the season is I'm tired of the club. I'm tired of not having a place. I want a place. So typically during the spring and summer, and it's extremely slow, but it is the slow time of the year for us. Man, I think that's the time of year where you can probably uh, scoop up some of the best deals because your agents maybe uh, got a little more time they can spend with you, and your uh, your sellers know that it's a slow time. So, uh, you know, it's all – but something that it's not I, – I didn't coin this frame, but the time to buy land is five years ago always. It's always – you need to get in, get in the land now. It's always going up in value. You know, uh, here, uh, you know, in, in our area right here north of Baton Rouge, even during the Obama years of the economy going down, we still, you know, our land prices still crept up a little bit. They didn't go up as high as years before, uh, and it's, we're starting to see some creeping up now uh, with uh, Trump in office and the economy doing a little better. But the, um, you know, it, it's always it's always you should have bought land yesterday kind of deal. So yeah. hey, no time to wait. Uh, that reminds me of of any any uh, fishing I've ever done where. I'll ask somebody for a report, and they'll say, "Oh, you should have been here yesterday. You should have been there yesterday." That's right. You know, um, well, um, man, I, I appreciate you, you covering all this stuff with me on the land and, and the process, and uh, you know, we've discussed taxes and down payments and interest rates and banks and. I tell you, I tell you something we didn't we didn't cover that I'm thinking of. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of clients. They buy land because they're tired of the club. You know, hey, man, I let this three-year-old eight-point go. We all agreed to let him go. And then such and such brought, you know, brought his cousin up there and he shot him. And, and, you know, and whatever triggered somebody, I finally go bite the bullet and buy a piece of land. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, when you buy a piece of land, you know, you can do a lot of research to, you know, find out, ask your realtor or, or your whoever's helping you or the landowner that you're buying, find out as much much as you can about the neighbors yeah uh you know this is what will tell you more than anything show me what you got pictures of last season show me what you got pictures of right now because no matter what the neighbors are shooting okay somebody can tell you man that neighbor shoots everything he's a terrible neighbor but if you're still getting pictures of big old mature deer and a lot of deer <laughs> apparently he's just not a good hunter or you got such a good place it produces that many yeah so, that's a great point. i think camera pictures you know, we'll, we'll tell you a little bit. Now, it don't tell you everything, but it tell, it'll tell you a lot. Now, um, that, that's, a, that's a great point that Frank Sullivan actually told us on his podcast a few weeks ago, which, um, you know, I asked him about uh, any sort of agreement or getting together with your neighbors on, on deer and what you're going to agree to shoot and not to shoot, kind of like a, you know, a management program on two or three different properties. And his first answer was that never works out very well. Usually you end up showing all your cards and they're just going to hunt closer to your line. Um, and then the second part is that when it comes down to the mentality that that and I mean we just got to look ourselves in the in the eye here and say it a lot of Louisianians are are brown and down hunters um, and well, and, and we're getting away from that it's not as much that anymore so 
let's let's take a typical land buyer. My my typical transaction that I sell is, you know, for me personally, is two hundred fifty about two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So let's say that's about seventy five acres or so, roundabout. Uh, you know, that guy who can spend that type of money on a piece of land, you know, recreational land, you know, he typically he's not the brown astounding. Not that sometimes it is because he says, look. I'm spending this type of money. I want to make this place as best as it can be. I want to plant the summer food plots. I want to run. I want to feed protein. I want to shoot the right deer. Or, or even if I don't want to shoot the right deer, I don't want to shoot a whole lot of them. Maybe, maybe hey, when my son comes up and he shoots a two-year-old eight-point, that's perfectly fine with me. But I don't want him to shoot ten of them, kind of deal. You know yeah. what I mean? Typically, these people are wanting to take care of land. I'll, and I'll say this, and I don't know if it's who I am and what I do is why my clients do this. But most of my clients are all about deer management. I'm going to say that 75% of them are, you know, they're at least trying some sort of deer management, uh, you know, because they're tired of, um, you know, and, and I attribute it. If there's one good thing that's coming out of outdoor TV, I think deer management, because you can turn on the sports and channels, the outdoor channel today, and you can look at what a five-year-old deer looks like. And, and you know, you can kind of see that, hey, these management things yeah. are, are working. Yeah, you know? and so it, I think if, it if, provides hope for right, your own does. property. Um, or where you're hunting, it, it allows you, you know, it, 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 I kind of relate, related to this. I travel a lot for work and a lot of, I've actually changed my opinion greatly about the world as I've traveled as much as I have in the past two or three years. And I've seen how great certain parts of other parts of the country are. I've seen how horrible other parts of the country are and they make me, I can't wait to get home back to Louisiana because I think it's the best place on earth. But it's kind of like that with, with, um, you're right, TV shows or social media or whatever, what happens is you see people being successful killing four and five and six year old 200 plus pound deer that are 160 inches and bigger. And it kind of leaves this thought in your mind of like, okay, if he can do it, I can do it. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's, it leaves this hope of, of there's something bigger and better and badder out there that I can take if I do my part. Right. Um, and, right. and so, you know, to finish up what I was saying with Frank Sullivan earlier, he goes, if you shoot the deer that you're worried about your neighbor shooting, and that's the reason that you're going to shoot it is so that you're he, part of the problem. You are that neighbor. You have mm -hmm. become the neighbor to them. You you're doing it because you're trying to cut them off. But in, in reality, you're, you're becoming the neighbor. You're becoming it. Exactly. If you, this is a deal. People say, well, if I don't shoot him, my neighbor will. Well, if you shoot him, he's guaranteed dead. If yep. you don't shoot him, maybe he makes it, you know, maybe your neighbor misses him or maybe he just comes to your food plot instead of the neighbors every day. Yeah. And, and I've said this a few times on the podcast so far, and that is in my experience, and this has been confirmed by a lot of other people and, and hopefully you too, when I say it, is that a lot of times you're more mature slash largest deer and not always the same, right? Sometimes your more mature deer is oh, yeah, you know, not the, not in his prime and a younger deer is and blah, blah, blah. But your older, smarter deer is generally going to be the last one to come out. Right. And mm -hmm. so especially early season when you're in bachelor groups or in the rut or something like that, um, you're going to have the younger and relatively dumber deer come out first. But I've always kind of thought of it like the bigger deer, the bigger buck 
is sending him out. Okay, like he's pushing him out front. He's forcefully. Well, I think in the they back. go and they walk to the edge of the food park, sitting here looking at Peter on the deer trail, and they say, "Well, there's those those six or seven are already out there, and they're not getting shot. Yeah. I guess I can walk out there." And so, if we needed to find the silver lining on having a neighbor that quote unquote shoots everything, it's that he's more than likely going to be shooting the front deer. Right. It's going to be the younger mm-hmm. one. And that is the thing that makes the older, more mature deer older and more mature. He sees that from the shadows from 50 or 100 yards back. He's more calculated. He's more deliberate in everything that he does. And so when you have somebody that's shooting the first thing that comes out, that is the equivalent of calling at and then sky blasting ducks. Okay. That's educating a flock of mallards. That's educating a flock of grays. And, um, and so because of that, they learn and they, they, they never forget it. And they always stay in that order forever until, until they, you know, the rut has them, you know, forgetting their, uh, their brain back on the bedding area and they just run around like idiots. But, um, I've always thought that, and I've, all, I've had it confirmed multiple times, that in, on average, the larger or most mature deer is going to be in the rear of the group if there is a group. Um, and because of that, if you have somebody that's trigger happy or is uh, just eager to get an arrow in something, they're probably not going to let a little basket eight walk. They're not going to let even the doe walk if, if it's the rut. And that deer that's hanging back is going to be educated and he's learning. And that's, I mean, that's how he got that old in the first place, you know? Um, I think you're definitely right. And, and, you know, as a asterisk on this whole conversation, hey, listen, if, 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 if it gets your rocks off to shoot a two-year-old eight when he walks under you, more power to you. I'm, I'm a big proponent. If you've ever watched, if you've ever watched anybody listening has ever watched my TV show, I've kind of, you know, practice what i preach look i've kind of got a standing rule anywhere i hunt if he's four years old and he walks by me i'm gonna shoot him mm-hmm. you know you know there's certain circumstances that may, maybe that didn't happen maybe i was on a lease or on a place where a guy says look we only shoot five-year-olds and you know i'm gonna honor that or maybe uh you know I, like my lease i have in missouri you know i've got some four-year-olds that are kind of really junky and we got some really good deer on camera and i get a lot of time where i can hunt that so maybe but for the most part if he's four year old and he walks by me, I'm gonna shoot my bow because hey, you know what the difference in a hundred and twenty five inch deer and a hundred and fifty inch deer smile is? Nothing. Yeah. I'm still yeah. smiling. I went to the woods deer hunting and I killed a deer. Like I was in Missouri this week. I got a lease right on Missouri and Iowa line. The deer weren't moving. We really were getting the farm ready for the fall, you know, hanging stands, hanging cameras, you know, checking on things, um and uh and one morning, I bought a I bought an antlerless tag, and, and a big doe ran up there, and I shot her. I think a 160 pound doe. She was huge. Shot her, you know, kind of knocked the dust off the bow for the year, mm-hmm. and uh, it her out a little bit. And like me and my cameraman were talking, hey, we went deer hunting, and we killed a deer. That's what it's all about, you know. You know, sometimes we can be so into this deer management. Why did we? We didn't start deer hunting because we like deer management. We started deer hunting because we like deer hunting, yeah. and we're like. Hey, I'm not. I'm not meant to say it. I like killing deer. Yeah, I love to watch sunrise and stuff like that. But I don't, that's not what I go out there for, man. I go out there to kill a deer, and I'm not ashamed to say it. I like eating them. I like shooting them. I like tracking them. I like everything. I'm, <laughs> I like I'm looking at about them right now. Yeah, 
got the dough in there, and I'm going to eat her later this week. That's how I feed my family. Yeah, I like talking about them. I like dreaming about them. I like driving to go see them. I like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I like I like everything about them, man. It's, yeah, uh, you know, I, uh, make sure uh, put put God first, family, and right behind that, deer hunting segment. Well, you know, I, I'm glad you threw that asterisk in there because uh, I'm that is something I'm I'm worried. I'm I'm by no means an elitist hunter, um, and in as far as Louisiana bow hunter goes, we're definitely not a uh, a horn or uh, or an antler shamer of any type whatsoever. I truly believe that any deer killed with a bow is a trophy, right? But Agreed. the the reason why I keep bringing this up about mature deer and, and positioning and stuff like that is because um, as you start getting a couple of kills under your belt and as you start uh, becoming more proficient at locating and getting close to deer, what's going to happen is a natural human progression of you wanting to get better at something, right? And so patience is one of the hardest parts of bow hunting. In fact, I'll go as far as to say that killing a deer with a bow is the easiest part of bow hunting. That that execution of putting an arrow in a deer is the easiest thing of the whole thing. The hardest part about deer hunting is being near deer often enough to shoot one and being near right. deer one, sorry, and being near one that is large enough for you to get shooken up when you're trying to kill him. And so the reality is, is that if you, this, I'm not trying to like change brown down hunters or anything like that. In fact, because I don't, I, I believe you can't push a string. Have you ever heard that? You can't push a string. You can only pull one. Right. I can't Mm -hmm. force you to vote for a certain candidate. All I can do is encourage you to vote for one and hopefully you you make the decision your own. But I will tell you, when it comes to deer hunting and more mature deer and their behavior, if you have patience and you start letting smaller bucks walk or younger does walk, there are larger, smarter and more deliberate mature deer behind them that is going to be a better trophy and not just because of antler size but because of this we do this for um, providership right we do this because you can't buy venison anywhere and so if you if you have the option to kill a deer that's 30 pounds heavier because he's older or she's older even um, and you're going to let that small one walk man, that's an extra 30 pounds of meat you got for waiting another 15 or 20 minutes, you know. Um, so and, and I think, it's, you know, we've been shooting bear bows at Trained Assassins since we've been part of the show, and Fred Bear said this, you can learn, you know, you can learn more about hunting deer with a bow in a week yeah. and then you can a, a whole lifetime of hunting with a rifle. And, and going to your point is, how much more can you learn about a deer when you let four or five go and then shoot? Now, let's just let's take it to does. You shoot the old doe that came in ten minutes before dark, and you had ten in the field before that. You know how much more did you learn about the ten that were already out there? Yeah, and 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 you you know nothing wrong with shooting the first doe comes out, but how much more rewarding is it the one that has eluded other hunters on and that one that will circle down win after the first day of the season? Yeah, and uh, you go ahead and get her out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, take out the. Uh... Take take out the scout, right? Take out the smart one that that's always blowing your hunt. Um, that's right. Well, um, a couple more questions for you. Number one, in your opinion, 
um, what is about the minimum size piece of property that somebody needs to have to truly have a management program? Man, they're, they're, you can't have, first of all, you cannot have a property big enough. Well, 99% of America can't. Uh, my parents have a really large track of land. Uh, and uh, at one time, they had 2,600 continuous acres. We sold some of it since then. But anyway, even, I, and hear me again, that's 2,600 continuous acres. Mm-hmm. And we had neighbors shooting, you know, every year we'd say, man, next year's going to be the year. Next year, we, we had really good deer hunting, but they always got shot by the neighbors. And, hey, that was the neighbor, neighbor's prerogative. You know, we were letting these two- and three-year-old deer go. And uh, my neighbor and my parents ended up ha- uh, putting up a high fence on their place. And that's where, where I kind of got my deer education. Now, I don't, you know, I, hey, if you want to have a high fence, that's your business. I'm not I'm not a huge ha- fan of them. You know, no, if people like to do it that's whatever but what it did is let me learn because we didn't bring any deer in all we did was manage what was there three years after we put the fence up when i killed a 152 before we put the fence up and it's probably a four-year-old deer i was 15 years old three years after we put the fence up we had 380 inch deer on the place these are not brought in these are deer that were just you know when we put the fence up we're trapped and so i learned so much about what my how many deer my neighbors were shooting it was the best deer education I could ever get to learn, man, I'm okay. Before I was not controlling what was happening in other places. Now I'm controlling only what's happened on my place. And so much, you know, so what I going, going back to that is every, you can't have a big enough piece of land, even on 2,600 acres, your neighbors are shooting your deer. Now I had a little track that I, I own and sold by the national forest last year. It was 41 acres. I put a camera up and put a food plot right beside the Homewood Center National Forest. You know, hardest deer, hardest turkeys in the country, and they're about to shoot. You know, everybody running dogs up there, and everybody's shooting a little bit of everything, but it's still good hunting. I had three deer on that place on camera that anybody would mount. Two of them were in, were in the 140s, and one of them had a triple main beam, was probably about 130. So what I'm saying by that is it don't matter how big the property is. If it's in the right spot, you're fine. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if you buy a piece, you got to be realistic, okay? If you buy 20 acres and you talk to your neighbors and they say, you know, we don't, we kind of just shoot whatever, you know, you got to got to be realistic and, and, you know, just enjoy your deer hunt. But if you've got 20 acres and you got a guy beside you that owns 100 and another guy on the other side that owns 400, they say, look, we don't shoot nothing unless he's four years old. Well, there's no reason to, for you to shoot anything unless he's four years old. If you've got good neighbors doing the same thing, you're part yeah. of their program. Well, so deer, and this is something that we kind of, I don't know why we don't acknowledge this more often, but deer are a naturally replenishing resource, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, there isn't a fixed amount of deer out there, and we're just killing them one by one every year. I mean, it's a cycle, right? And it's actually, this is going to be kind of a, a, a long stretch, but think about deer being dollar bills, Okay, money in circulation in an economy. Okay, if the woods, all the property in a county is an economy and dear dollar bills, we all spend dollar bills separately. And I'll spend your money, you spend mine. Sometimes I'll have yours, sometimes you'll have mine, sometimes our neighbor will have the other ones. And sometimes you know, we end up actually taking that money out of circulation or that deer out of circulation and shooting it. But at any given time, we could have all of our own money 
in other people's pockets and other all of our own deer on other people's properties. And it just, right. it just right. rotates. It goes in circles and circles and circles. And so it, it, that, it, the reason why I came up with that economy analogy is because it's a vital part of the life cycle of deer, property, hunters, and the process is that having a ton of money, or in this case, all the deer, we in not spending it, meaning not putting out into the world and not having other people be able to use it also, it limits the whole process. It kills the economy. It's a limiting factor. It's a, sorry, it's a limiting process. And so um, if we are, if we think a deer like money, then we're, it's all, it's forever revolving and it's much bigger than any of us can ever fathom in our own heads as far as figuring out or understanding the process. There's too many variables. There's too many ways that they get in and out. Um, and so, like you said, you had three deer on 41 acres, right? And, and, hunting small tracts of land is probably one of my favorite things to do because it's like hunting an arena. Um, you have to be so calculated as to how you go in and out of the property and not disturbing things and, and all of that. And so, um, it isn't so much having big deer all the time on your property. It's, I guess you could say, are there big deer or a lot of deer within three or four miles of here because that might be their home range they might go all over the place and they might be on your place over the summer and then they disappear come bow season but you pick up you know i mean how many times have you gone into november or december and you have deer show up that blow your mind when you check a game camera and you've never seen them before that day i've got a place i was on the place yesterday and on from december 10th to december 20th kind of our hardcore pre-rut right here in southwest mississippi every year throw out the throw the game cameras out the window because any given day <laughs> a new shooter can show up and it's been that way ever since i've hunted this property probably six or seven years you know it's uh you know you you know early season i practice what a preach you you but time does not kill deer early season for the most part. I mean, I'm sure somebody's throwing their hat off right now listening to this, whenever they listen to it. But but the way I like to hunt up here, you know, my game cameras kill a deer. All I can do, when the deer get on a pattern, I slide in there and kill them. All I can do is mess up their pattern. Now, during the rut, butt time will kill them. You know, you watch the cameras yeah. like you do anytime else, but that time whenever anything can happen, man, that's when you need to be in the woods, and you know, because anything can happen. Yeah. Well, um, before we got started on the podcast tonight, before I hit record, you were telling me about a new piece of legislature that just passed. Um, so go ahead and tell us about that. Yeah, it's really big for us here in Mississippi. Uh, you know, in Mississippi, different Louisiana, uh, this rule has evolved over the years. And um, but as of 2017's deer season, we had to be 100 yards from a deer feeder, uh, which you know, I talked to my my representative about it. I said, you know, that, you know, a guy sitting there 100 yards with a rifle and me sitting over 20 yards with a boat, I mean, what's the difference? So finally they pushed it through, and as of October 1st, we can hunt overfeed in Mississippi, you know, no distance. The distance doesn't matter, which is how it needs to be. Now, uh, to Easter on, if you want to hunt overfeed, I prefer a deer. I prefer a deer eating corn when I kill him. I just, uh, hey, man, uh, you know. I'm not saying you're right or you're wrong, and hey, call me a cheater if you want to. But uh, anyway, <laughs> we can do it legal now. We can hunt a uh, we can hunt a deer 
Uh, it's, it can't be on the ground now. It still has to be in some type of spin feeder or trough feeder, but you can be any distance from it, which is good for bow hunters. So what date is this going live? What date does this start? October, according to my uh, what I read on uh, – Mississippi Wildlife Fishery and Parks on their website, and I talked to my local game warden. October 1st, on Monday, October 1st, it is going live. So this deer season, I'll be ready to go. That's great, man. So uh, so can people, in the meantime, obviously this episode is gonna, not going to air until after that, but can people feed up until then in, in preparation, or is that when they're – y'all been running for forever, No, 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 you, forever, can, you right? can feed now. You, you, gotcha. you can feed all year. Now I, now, I don't know much about Mississippi's laws, but I think I have heard something about feed not being able to be on the ground. Is that right? Yeah, you can't have feed just straight on the ground. You know, you can't just pour a bag of rice bread on the ground. Okay. It has to be up off the ground in some type of feeder, so – you know, if you just want to go the sheep route and it works, and, and it, you know, uh, we have a real bad hog problem up in our area. So you can take like a, you know, a, a gum tree as big around as your leg, cut it off 20 inches tall, put your piece of plywood on top, pour your rice bread on there, keeps a lot of the hogs from eating it and keeps it up off the ground mm. and your deer will eat it. That's a cheap version. Or, you know, you can, of course, spin feeder or trough feeder or whatever you want to do. Gotcha. Okay. Well, a spin feeder is just going to put it back on the ground anyway. Is that okay? At that yeah, I, I, you preaching to the choir, but that's just their law. <laughs> okay. I don't, like I said, I'm not too up to date on the Mississippi laws. I, I only hunt in Louisiana. But um, so uh, another question I've got for you, and um, I, if you can go into detail on this, I'd like you to. Um, you're talking about you only shoot four year old deer. Okay, so obviously we're over audio. We don't have any visuals or anything like that. But can you give our listeners some of the things that you're looking for that that tells you without a matter of without that tells you without a doubt in your mind that that is a four or a five year old deer? What are the some of the the clues? Now, now dis, disclaimer: I've been very fortunate. To, you know, I, I have an outfitting business and I don't do much with it anymore. But I've guided hunts from about seven different places across Mississippi and get to hunt all over the country. So I kind of got to have a little bit of an advantage. But the number one tool that I think you can have for managing deer and aging deer. It's your game cameras, man. You watch those deer on camera. You can kind of figure out from year to year, you know, how old they are. Okay, I thought he was two last year, and so he's probably three this year. But, you know, a four-year-old deer is not going to look like a super, super old, old deer. He's going to look like a really uh, – he's not going to have this uh, – three-year-old is going to look more like a uh, racehorse. You know, he's sporty. He looks yeah. He looks manly, but a four-year-old's going to have a, a little bit of a – uh, thicker, um, let's say, a uh, offensive guard, maybe. You know, he's not as big as a tackle like a five-year-old, but uh, you know, he's just he, he, he's kind of big. Maybe he's a tight end type, but you know, he, he's pretty big. Uh, you know, and, and and you know, and a lot of your guys will tell you, well, don't look at the horns when you're trying to age them. I get what they're saying, but let's just let's just be smart about this. I'm not a biologist. I'm just old business land realtor out there but let's say if he's 200 inches he's probably not two so you know they <laughs> yeah. say don't look at the horns but let's not you know let's let's be smart about there this. Is, so, there um, is of course a correlation between generally between age and antler size and mass right right um now and, um, you know you can learn a lot, you can learn a lot about deer not always and, and look when i say these things to the people listening out there this is for population there can be individuals that 
throw this way off. But generally, you know, uh, I tell my friends sometimes, you know, you want to learn a little bit about your deer herd, turn your video, turn your game cameras for a couple of days on video. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when those deer, let's say you're, you're feeding to a feeder or something like that, or a trail or a food plot, when those deer come in there, you know, you can kind of look at the pecking order whenever they're on video or even on pictures too. You can look at the pecking order, you know, when this deer walks up, everybody else leaves because he's big and bad. He's a mature deer. So that can kind of give you maybe, man, I'm kind of leaning. Is he three or is he four? And then, you know, you got a deer, you know this three up there, and this deer walks up there and runs him off. Yeah, he may be three, but he's kind of acting like he's four. So, um, you know, uh, three to four is a pretty hard, a pr- pretty hard uh, a lot of times. Four to five is maybe a little bit easier. You know, a five-year-old, he's, he's kind of got a little bit of everything. He should be at his peak. And a six-year-old, um, you know, he should be – when a six-year-old steps out, there should be no doubt. Yeah. But, like I always say, the asterisk in the equation, I've killed deer – uh, 400 yards from each other that were both six years old. These are deer that we followed all through the years, or I got actually got a clients on them. Six-year-old deer killed relatively the same type of year. One deer was, this is one year apart, one deer was 262 pounds, one deer was 151 pounds. Mm. Now, that's not normal, but um, it can happen. And the 151, yeah, he was rutted down a little bit, but, I mean, he was healthy. I mean, he was a monster. I mean, big, giant, 20-inch wide, 10-point. I mean, he was a monster. So, I mean, you know, it's just, uh, hey, I'm a little old bitty guy. You know, there's some guys out there that, uh, you know, can play SEC football that are, six, you know, six six three hundred. You know, deer are the same way. They're some bigger than others. Yeah. They are they are individuals, and I, I think we sometimes we forget that. I, that's always been something that's always kind of uh, – I've been intrigued by from the fishing world when people say something like, um, "Oh, they're only biting on green today," <laughs> or yeah. uh, or or they'll only hit this spinner bait, or something like you know this this deer, you know my deer herd only like persimmon flavored rice bran. I've never been under. I've never been able to understand how people can make a conclusion blanketly about an entire population of an of animals that are not tied to each other, other than maybe a, a group mentality at most. Okay, they don't share. Right. They don't share any of the same decision making. They don't share any of the same um, exact genetics. Meaning they aren't you know perfect twins of each other or clones or things like that. But you're right. When it comes to deer, every single one's different, and every single one has has different sizes. And and shoot, I've even seen where they're different colors. You know, how many times have you ever seen an orange doe? You know, how many yeah, times? Yeah, I've, I've got one right now. One of my cameras. This doe is. She's not a white doe, but she is. If every other deer you would classify as red and brown right now, mm-hmm. she is. She is pale. I, I don't know why. And then, uh, but yeah, every 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 one of them is different, man. And um, you know, I tell you, what's something you can learn about every one of them is different. You put a cell cam, you know, one that sends you sends you your pictures all day, all night, or whatever. You learn so much more about a deer. Because, like, a while ago, I went through 3,000 pictures on my, one of my cameras and kind of cleared it out, you know. And I'm just scrolling through them, real, same buck, same buck. Oh, there's a different buck, no, whatever. When you're watching there and you're sitting there beside your kid at night watching TV and you're watching the, when, okay, when that buck comes in, God, it's a north wind right now. Hmm. Pressure's at 
29. I mean, yeah. he, he really likes to move. When that, I mean, you can learn. Whenever you're old of that person, I'm a level with him. I took a big 10 point two years ago. I had a cell cam picture up. And, man, I knew I could predict every time that sucker was going to move because he just had patterns. But it, what it was is I just I got personal with him. I watched him every day. And you can really learn a lot about him with those cell cams. Well, well. I keep going back to Frank Sullivan and his deer. Obviously, that I mean, the big deer he killed last year was just right, a right. monster. But he said on our podcast that he wasn't hunting that deer. There was a deer that was always with his deer that he named Tattletail, and this deer he said was the most alert and most nervous deer buck that he's ever hunted, and that if if there were five deer eating out of a feeder. The big deer that he ended up killing would be eaten there, but Tattletail was in the back looking around. Oh looking, yeah, and and so he, he was like, "Look, I, I knew that I wasn't that I wasn't hunting this deer I was trying to kill. I was hunting Tattletail, hoping that I would get a shot to kill this other one." And so, um, you know, it's 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 funny to me when um, I see a lot of these emotional based marketing strategies in the hunting industry these days, which I'm, I'm sure you're no stranger to. They try to sell you on the fact that like all deer are the same or all deer will like certain feed or all deer like this mineral block or whatever. I mean, I've had it where I'll feed something and I can have eight does and three bucks coming, but I have only ever seen my target buck hanging out in the background and he will come up and smell it and I'll get one picture and then he's gone. He never sits there and eats it. Mm-hmm. And and then I've had that where I've had bucks come in and no does will touch it. Um, and so it's 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 been interesting to be to learn and, and almost you almost have to give respect to them for being individuals in their own way, in their own world. Right. Well, um, that's what makes it so fun, man, when you think you got them figured out. That's just like anything else, you know. As I love chasing the elephant too. You know, when you think you got them figured out, they'll prove you wrong. <laughs> Absolutely, man. And that's yeah, that's what keeps us going. You know, it's what what's the worst thing you can say at duck hunting is I know where they're going to be tomorrow. Well, you're about to start looking like a fool about five thirty in the morning right. tomorrow because they're not going to be there. You think you had them, and you're wrong. You know. Um, but, uh, well, look, man, we've been talking for, it looks like almost about an hour, a little over an hour now. Um, we've got a lot of great information for people about buying property. Uh, and just like I hoped we would, we went, uh, we fell down the rabbit hole on turkey hunting, deer hunting. And, um, you know, that's the, that's the whole intention of the podcast is just, you know, Slade, I've only met you once or twice, right? And and obviously, I've seen you on TV and and on your show. It's a great show. Um, and I was just hoping that we'd have a conversation that people could learn from tonight. You know, because I was I was talking to uh, I was talking to somebody earlier today over Messenger, Facebook Messenger, and they were kind of rib jabbing me because I hadn't been deer hunting for twenty years, right? And and I want to clarify something. By no way, shape, or form am I the deer whisperer, all right? In fact, I could tell you more of what not to do than what to do, but the reason why I have this podcast is because I want our listeners to learn from people like you, right? People that that did grow up in a a great environment for deer hunting and and have kind of in a, in a, I don't want to, I guess, jinx you, but figured it out, right? Um, Right, definitely. Definitely, I don't have it figured out. I think I know a lot of the wrong things to do, and you know, it's um, it's 
I, I say this about my dog all the time. I have a really good deer tracking dog, and I say this about him. I say he's like the kid that grew up by the batting cage. You know, he got to track so many deer. Yeah. You know, whenever he whenever he was little, that he, he had no choice but it. And I'm the same way. You know, I grew up in an um, I grew up on my family's place uh, when I was young. We had to shoot a lot of those. Uh, and we got a bunch of doe tags. And so, I mean, there was one year where I killed 20 deer with my boat. Mm. If you can't learn how to be a good deer hunter when you kill a 20 year deer one year with a boat, you know, it, I was very fortunate and feel very blessed. And, you know, I had a, a family and uh, now I have a wife, of course, that allows me to hunt a lot. So, um, uh, you know, very blessed and uh, definitely don't don't want any credit for it because uh, if it wasn't for a good Lord above, I wouldn't be able to definitely do what I do. Yeah. Well, I, I haven't said this since our very first episode, but I'm going to I'm going to say it again now. So I, I have this this belief that you never actually get good at deer hunting. You just get progressively less bad. All right, deer hunting. That is 100% true. <laughs> deer hunting is something you never master. It is not a skill, it is not an art it, 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 because you aren't in control of the process, right? You're not in control of the environment and you're certainly not in control of the animal. And so the, well, the and you bring up a good point and before we end I have to say this cuz this is one of my this is one of my pet peeves. Listen, we can't control the weather. We can't control when the deer are going are going to move. But what we can control is how we prepare ourselves. Mm-hmm. Hey, do I believe that Scent, Scentlock's one of my sponsors? I think it's a really good product. It looks good on me. Does it fix every problem in the scent world? By app? no, it does not. Does I think it gives me an advantage? Yes. Yep. Do I think the scent control products give me an advantage? Do I think you know? practicing with my bow and being proficient what i do gives me advantage you know setting up stands so let's we can throw a lot of things out the window but if you are more prepared by large you're going to be more successful than if you're not so uh if i could give one tip for before the open week of both seasons be prepared yeah you know, shoot your bow make sure your equipment is in good shape uh make sure your clothes are clean you're scent free because you know that deer let's be honest He's probably not going to move in daylight opening day, the big buck. He's probably not. That's that. I mean, most you're you're less successful a lot more times than you're successful. But what you can control is the day he's going to move. Maybe it is opening day, and maybe your wind does circle as it does in Mississippi and Louisiana right before dark. You know, that's circling. But you took care of your scent and you whipped him that day and you killed him versus all oh, that scent control stuff don't work and you just <laughs> went hunting and he did get downwind and he smelled you You know it's just the little things that allow him to walk up there and you get a shot yeah you know that's uh, i don't I, I have i have no idea if you're affiliated with ozonics or use them or whatnot but um, well actually scentlock came out with a new product called odds it's a yeah. uh, you know and it's a it, we've got a uh you know, your, your bags, and I got a deal in my truck, and I'm t- I yeah, believe in it. That's right. When I pull it out that bag, I smell that ozone, and I did use ozonics before, uh, you know, a lot of the same type of products, and uh, definitely good products. Well, you know, there's a lot of people that are critical of ozone type of scent control, right, regardless of company. And um, in, in the thing that I'm, I'm by no means uh, – hardcore i like i'm not one of these people that says i i don't go in the woods without my ozonics or or whatever or i don't use it other than this bag or or whatnot um but my the way i explain it to people is it's an insurance policy 
And at most, if that product, whether it's Scent Crusher or Scent Blaster or Scent Lock Suit or, or any sort of, of spray or Dead Down Wind, and I'm just naming stuff off the top of my head, right, it doesn't right, matter right. what it is. If it affords you an extra 30 seconds that you otherwise might not get from that deer to kill him, then it is paid for itself, right? And mm-hmm. and so nobody has ever come out and said that ozone-based scent control, like infield scent control systems, will make you invisible to deer. Nobody's ever said that you will you you won't. And exist I think anymore. in the south, in the south, they're less effective because you know when we hunt up in the Midwest, you know, every afternoon you usually got an eight to a twelve mile an hour wind mm-hmm. that blows consistently out of whatever way it's supposed. You know. Yeah, opening day here, it's supposed to be an east-southeast wind. I'm already looking on, uh, you know, so I'm deciding on where I'm hunting opening day and that sort of thing, getting ready. But I know as well as anybody, when I get in the stand, it could be blowing out of the northwest because that's what it does, especially mm-hmm. when you're hunting the hills along the river. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and so if, you, if you've if you got anything that you can do, and, and I'm not – brands don't matter much to me specific products don't matter much to me because let me tell you I've, I've tried just about everything and have mixed feelings about some and feel strongly about others but um if you can give yourself you're talking about preparedness if you can give yourself that extra 15 or 20 seconds that a deer might stand there and in his mind he's wondering if this thing he smells is a threat or not then that is paid for itself because you're not paying for, you're not paying for an invisibility cloak you're paying for extra time, extra chance. Uh, you know, five more steps is what you're paying for. It's not mm-hmm. uh, like you said. It's not a fix all. This isn't a solution to all my deer hunting problems where you know I become uh, invisible to the deer's nose. No, you don't smell as much like a human. There's right. You you yeah. whip, you you beat tattletale so you can kill the Louisiana that's, State Rex. That's exactly I mean, it. You know that's extreme case, but it's the same way for the 120-inch eight-points you're hunting open in that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Slade, let's uh, let's finish this up, man. Tell us a little bit about Trained Assassins uh, trained assassins, and what we can expect on the show this year, where people can watch it and things like that. Well, if you hadn't followed the show, we're filming Season 7 right now. Uh, you know, it's four of us on the show. It's three guys from Louisiana, and I'm from Mississippi, are the hosts. Uh, Blake Duvall, Ryan Wasson, Craig Fitz, and Slade Priest, myself. They're all from... Uh, a meet uh, Greensburg and Clinton, Louisiana. I'm from right here in Central Mississippi. We all either went to high school together or played high school football against each other. And we're just a bunch of guys. We've got regular jobs. Hey, you know, you hear the social media, every, uh, you know, TV's bad for hunting. Look, we're a group of guys who love to bow hunt, and, and we do shoot some deer with some rifles, and we just love to hunt, and we figure out a way where we can kind of pay for our hobby. It's fun. Uh, it's, you know, it's given us an avenue. I get to speak at a lot of churches and stuff, you know, give my testimony and, 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 you know, and, and if I can get one kid in their life to look up to me as, Hey, Mr. Slade, you know, he, he's not afraid to take his hat off and say the blessing before he, he, he loves the Lord Jesus. If I get one kid that looks at that as cool, mm-hmm. uh, versus somebody kneeling on the sidelines before the NFL football game, I did my job, you know, yeah. having all this thing last, but anyway, uh, we got a great season ahead. We've already got one episode uh, wrapped up. Craig Fitz and uh, Jay, also one of our buddies, they killed some good deer in Wyoming out there with a the real tree crew. Uh, we'll be hunting Missouri. Uh, I drew an Iowa tag this year. That's a, you know, 
four-year draws, and me and Craig both drew one of them. Uh, we'll be hunting Old Mexico again, and if anybody wants to go hunt with us, we're kind of putting a package together for Old Mexico. It's safe. It's fun. Uh, and at the end of this podcast, I, I'll give you some information about how to get a hold of me if you if you um, want to go on that hunt. But we're hunting Missouri, like I said. Um, we'll be hunting Missing Louisiana. And something that's cool that I've always been extremely prideful of is I think this year we've got – Oh, we've got 13 episodes this year. We've got four or five that are basically from Mississippi and Louisiana. And if you know how hard it is to kill a deer in Mississippi and Louisiana, you can appreciate, you know, most of these episodes are two to three kills per episode. You know, you're, you're looking at eight to 12 kills yeah. right here where all of everybody listening and hunts. Now, we are blessed to have some good places to hunt, but some, like, you know, the two deer I killed in Louisiana, I mean, Mississippi last year were on a 200-acre farm right over by Natchez, you know. I mean, yeah, it's a pretty good-sized place, but, I mean, you know, it's not like anybody else doesn't hunt, and some of these places are on hunting leases that we've leased, so it's not like we're going to hunt the place that nobody else gets to hunt, you know. And some of our turkeys we killed in the home of National Forest, you know, public hunt. Yeah, that's uh, great. But it, uh, and look, I ate. Hey, to the guys that go out there and get it done and listening on public ground every day, my hat's off to you, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, uh, if you can get it done, if you can get it done where we live in Mississippi and Louisiana on private or public ground, I, I can honestly say this, you will be a good hunter for any species across the country. I've been to Northern Quebec killing caribou. I've been, I've been in old Mexico. I've been all parts of Canada, mule deer. And let me just tell you, if you can kill a deer or turkey, in Mississippi, Louisiana, you can kill a lot anywhere else because I think that Mississippi, Louisiana, Georgia, North Florida, we grow some of the best hunters just because we appreciate it. You know, uh, you know, you have to work for them down here. Absolutely. Well, look, man, I, I appreciate you joining me tonight, and I, I'm I'm uh, I'm pretty excited to get this episode out because I think we covered a lot of great information. I think our listeners learned a ton about the land buying process about turkey hunting, about deer hunting, and then, and then everything else that we've gotten. We like I said, we found out, fell down the rabbit hole, but that's exactly what this was created for was to do that with, uh, with guys like you. So thank you for being on, man. Well, man, I appreciate it. Everybody. Hey, if you want to catch a show Tuesday nights on the sportsman channel at seven and 10 PM. And then if you need to contact me, check out huntinglandman.net. And uh, we'll get you a piece of land sold, or we can talk some TV, or like me and Kyle, we can chase a rabbit hole for a little while. <laughs> well, sounds good, man. Slade, thanks for being on, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you've got anyone you'd like to hear on the show, send us an email at info at louisianabowhunter.com. We want to say a huge thank you to our sponsors, Old Cypress Outdoors, Cousin Smokehouse, and Steve German's Taxidermy. We could not put this podcast on without you, so thank you so much for your support. Y'all be sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive updates for when we release new episodes. And make sure you follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and the website at louisianabowhunter.com. See y'all next week.